Welcome to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature. Do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two, episode 11. And on today's programme, I talk to Dr. Luke Hughes, a games designer and developer of a new computer game called Burden of Command. At the time of recording... Burden of the Command was under development. It aims to be a game that, quote, is an emotionally authentic tactical leadership role-playing game. The player takes the role of a captain and leads a company of American infantrymen through fighting in France and Germany in the closing years of the Second World War. Luke spoke to me from his home in America. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and your interest in morale and motivation? Well, thank you, Tom. I'm pretty excited to be on this podcast because, you know, I'm pretty excited about combat morale. And my God, there's a whole podcast devoted to it. How could how could my dreams come true this well? <laughs> and I'm I'm actually being pretty honest on that. So my my background and interests, uh, my undergrad, I worked. I'm bringing it up because I was at the University of Pennsylvania. I worked with a, a pretty famous cognitive, uh, well, primatologist, David Premack who studied uh, animal cognition, a form of chimpanzees. And I worked with some other very emotionally oriented, as in emotional psychology, physiological psychology, psychologists there. So early on, I got very sensitized to uh, emotions. Obviously, the battlefield involves emotions. That's why I'm bringing it up. Also, cognition. I did sort of AI-focused things. Then I did a master's at Oxford in neurophysiology and psychology, so continuing many of those things. And then my PhD was at Yale in what I'd call human-centered AI, meaning really looking at not trying to build machines that could be intelligent for whatever reason, but rather trying to build AIs that somehow reflected how uh, human animals think and act. So that, but my father was a professional historian uh, history of Technology, Thomas Park Hughes. He was actually, I got a, I got a brag for him. He's passed. He was a fi- Pulitzer Prize finalist. So he got me very interested in history. I'm Southern background. So it's hard as a Southerner not to be interested in military. And so that got me to, you know, interest in Burden Command, where you're thinking about people, emotions in a battlefield, military, history, psychology, so forth. In fact, my wife, by the way, I should mention is an Air Force vet. Uh, one of my sons is a vet, and uh, we have quite a few vets on the team, um, as well as some advisors like John McManus, a military historian, John Ant- Colonel John Antle, who's pretty well known as an author and uh, military expert, Gordon Rotman, who's written a series of books on the military and was a Vietnam Special Forces guy. So, you know, we have, that's that's what who you're talking to today. You're not just talking to me, but you're talking to the expertise this team gives me. That, that way I can blame them if I make a mistake here. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, Burden of Command. Can you tell us about its genesis and how it aims to be different from other computer games? Yeah, now I have to, you know, I am in the game industry doing a game. So I, I, I recognize I may be talking to people here and not always from the game industry. So you'll have to bear with me if I mention things you're not familiar with, but I'll try to describe them. So uh, there's an interesting very historically minded game out there from a Swedish studio called Paradox called Crusader Kings. And it's extremely popular despite being very geeky. It focuses, you run a medieval family and you're a particular ruler or prince or duke or duchess or whatever. And it's really kind of like Game of Thrones in a history context. So I was playing playing it one night um, and I was getting odd looks from my wife because, you know, you, you keep hearing these babies born when uh, my family would have new children. She'd say, what's going on here? <laughs> but I was playing uh, Crusader Kings 3 and my sort of medieval family. And it suddenly hit me. I was thinking, well, wouldn't it be interesting to follow a family of officers across World War II? And, of course, some of you are probably thinking immediately Band of Brothers. Right. And it was kind of a band of brothers inspiration. Right. They were a band of brothers moving across northern Europe in the war. So 
That the genesis is really an inspiration from a socially minded history game. And so after that, I started working on it. And then, you know, when you start my own personal background, I was a, a director of research for a large consulting firm called Accenture, did R&D for them. Uh, I also was did startups and so forth. So I was always fascinated in leadership personally. I wanted I was always wanted to be a good leader and this time in a business context. So I studied a lot. So there I am thinking about doing a band of brothers going across Europe. I have an intrinsic interest in leadership and some experience in the business world. And, uh, you know, then it went from there. So how does the game work? Can you tell us about the, the, the sort of the way that the game is going to play and the historical unit upon which the game is based and the areas where we may be with the unit uh, during their um, their campaign in Europe during the latter stages of the Second World War? Sure. And let me uh, start by I think I skipped something you asked me in your prior question, which is how is it different from other computer games? So. That's actually rather easy. If I were to give one, I, you know, I was in Silicon Valley in a lot of my career, so you learn elevator pitches. So uh, if I boiled burden of command down to one word, I'd boil it down to leadership. It's a leadership game. If I boiled it down to a phrase, it's a leadership role-playing game, right? You try to be a captain in a World War II uh, in a charge of an American company moving through Europe. How does it differ from other games? Well, most military-focused games really fall into two camps. One is what's called the first-person shooter, where you're running around quickly shooting everything in sight. And typically, it's very arcadey. There are some exceptions, but typically. And they're incredibly, uh, you know, Medal of Honor and so forth, emotionally compelling. When you sit it down, they've done an incredible job of putting you in a visual, auditory, physical, you know, verbal context. It makes you feel you are there as much as the screen can. I, you know, I've tried them out. Uh, but... You're running along, you're semi-terrified, people are dying around you, and then you get killed. And, wow, you push a button, and 20 seconds later, you're back, alive. Which, of course, for me, destroys any sense that it's other than a game, right? Because, uh, to, to my mind, some, the essence of war, in some sense, is permanent death, right? The burden of command is that you will order people to their deaths, and they're not coming back. And in burden of command, as a difference, you know, you don't come back. You, you send one of your lieutenants up the hill and they get killed, they won't be back. So that's a central difference. The other form of military game, either board or digital, is almost like a, how can I describe it? It's like a command simulation. You're moving little units around on a map. Here's third Panzer, you know, here's a first Divi US division. They might be little cardboard tiles or something, or a little sprite in a digital game, but they're very abstract. Right. So there's sort of the game Napoleon might be interested in playing. Right. Or somebody at the general level. I enjoy them. But for most people, they're quite dry unless you have a lot of historical background. So you have either the visceral, highly unrealistic or they're arguably fairly realistic, but very dry and unhuman. And what Burden of Command tries to do is put you in the human center of war. I mean, I don't think it's a chance that Band of Brothers had millions of uh, people love it, including men and women. Why? Because they really tell human stories about what it was like as, as a person to be in combat and outside of combat. And so Burden of Command distinguishes itself, I think, in most people's eyes by that. We try to say war is a human experience. It's often a brutal experience. It's sometimes an heroic experience. And it is a different place. And it is not bang, bang, you're dead and you come back, nor is it a dry abstraction. So if I were to sum up, that's the difference of the game. Now, you asked, let me get to your specific question, uh, how the game works. So I would boil it down to two things. First, tactically, it's a little bit like some of the traditional war games so uh, or tactical games. If you've played any computer games, a tactical game that has some similarity, something called XCOM. Uh, if you've played board games, or something called Squad Leader. Uh, but if none of that means anything to you, you move around on a map of an actual historical battle uh, units representing individual squads, members of platoons, and individual leaders, the lieutenants in charge of a given platoon, uh, the captain. I am giving short shrift here to the NCOs, not because they're not incredibly important, but we kind of had to boil down the number of characters we could cover so you would care about them, since it is burden of command. If you don't care about them, if it's dry, then, you know, it won't uh, succeed. So, but anyway, back to it, you're, run, you're, you're in charge of, say, 
a company level action between your cotton balers, that's a US uh, unit I'll get to, and maybe a German or Italian or Vichy uh, unit you're fighting in a historical campaign. It's coupled uh, very tightly with what you might call choice of game interactive fiction, uh, meaning you are on the battlefield and off given unusual, difficult situations to make leadership decisions around. They might be moral, they might be logistical, they might be tactical, uh, and we try to get the human element and we have writers who have been successful in their own right and game context helping us achieve that. And I'll give you, for fun, a concrete example. And I, I want all the listeners here, and I'm going to put Tom on spot. He doesn't just get to ask me tricky questions. He's going to have to make his own decision here. We're going to see what kind of leader Tom is now, not as opposed to a theoretician. All right. So I'm going to read you, read you a situation, and then you're going to have to make the choice. So listen up. Friendly artillery pummels the enemy. Suddenly, your sergeant shouts the order to advance without so much as a glance your way, and definitely without your command. You bark the counter order. The men stumble to a halt. Your sergeant turns, bleary-eyed from drink or shock, and repeats his own command to the men. The barrel of his rifle shifts with a dreamlike slowness your way. So, bit of a tricky situation here. Um, so here are your choices, Tom and reader. You don't and listeners, you don't get to back out. Make your own decision before Tom tells us the answer. Okay. Choice one, um, and by the way, while we all sort of are amused by this, I'm actually using an historical situation here, which I will explain. So I'm not, we didn't make this up, by the way. Okay, but we use things like this in the game. Choice one, shoot him before he gets my men killed. And the cost for you is you, you know, you're going to lose your sergeant here. Sergeant, now is not the time for an advance. And there you may, you don't know what will happen, but it might be a morale effect. You may take some squad casualties. Sergeant. I am in command here. Um, you might hit, hit your trust with him, so forth. Knock the weapon from his grasp. So here are your chances. Shoot him. Uh, tell him now is not the time for an advance. Tell him you're in command or knock the weapon from his grasp. So what are you going to do, Tom? You've got exactly no time. I'm going to knock the weapon from his grasp. Well, you are a normal human being. Congratulations. However, you did not act historically. Unbelievably, the historical choice was, wait for it, I kid you not, shoot him. And uh, guess who this situation was? This is Lieutenant Spears from Band of Brothers fame, the really zealous officer. Uh, for those of you who've seen the series, like runs across. Uh, the, well, he's, if you've seen the series, you know who Lieutenant Spears is. Anyway, this was something that had happened to him, I think, uh, Shortly before the series starts, you can look it up online and we're roughly re actually relatively closely capturing what happened. There was, I believe, an informal hearing or court martial. He was acquitted, but he shot the guy. I think he killed him. So there you go. There's a burden of command leadership decision. And we have those throughout the campaign. So we try to enmesh you in things like that, but also ones like you know, your sergeant comes up to you and says, you know, we don't have enough gas right now for the vehicles we're using. What are we going to do? There is some I notice over there with the free French. Do you want me to lift some of them? Uh, I made that decision once and deeply regretted it. That was a spoiler. <laughs> uh, so narrative choose your own adventures intermingled with um, tactical battlefield combat. But also we cover a fair amount of off the battlefield. You may go into Na wartime Naples. Uh, you may deal with morale issues with the men. And you asked who and where, who is the cotton balers? Cotton balers are uh, perhaps the longest serving uh, US regiment from uh, 7th Regiment, 3rd US Infantry Division. Our uh, consulting historian, Dr. John McManus, wrote a book on them called American Courage, American Carnage. And that was our core Bible historically. And we follow their battles. Uh, where? Their journey is actually somewhat unusual. It is not involved Normandy. So they landed Operation Torch, 1942 in Morocco. We cover that. Then they went to Sicily. Then they went to, unusually, southern France, not northern France. Oh, I'm sorry. They went to Italy after Sicily. Then southern France, not northern. And they ended up in Germany. And by the way, Band of Brothers portrays the Band of Brothers as having captured Hitler's eagle's nest. Uh, but there's a quite an interesting little sub-historical debate there 
and a little bit of tension between, you know, the cotton balers and the 101st because there is a good argument that actually the cotton balers captured the eagle's nest. I think it really comes down to how you define capturing eagle's nest because I think one group captured one part, the other captured the other part. Of course, each is, is certain that they captured the most important part. But John McManus has an article online if you want to get into the details. So that's the who, what, where, and what. So how have you modeled factors like cohesion and morale and soldiers' reactions to their uh, leaders in the game? Uh, do you want me to uh, tell you? Well, let me start with defining, uh, you know, the role oh, of morale sorry. and cohesion. Um, yeah, you know, and by the way, I'll warn you, this is like core interest for me. So I'm going to try to control myself, but I may get a little excited talking about these topics. So what's my definition of morale? For me, I use it rather synonymously with unit cohesion and also a little loosely with talking even about individual morale, like a leader's morale. I, I would define it, I hope, a little differently uh, from my physiological psychology background as that whatever it is that, hmm, let me back up a little bit. So I look at human, the human mind emotionally as what uh, an AI guy, Marvin Minsky, called a society of mind which is a fancy way to say we have a lot of conflicting emotions inside us. Or Shakespeare might say, you know, part of us is the angel, part of us is the devil or the animal. We have a lot going on inside us. And at any given moment, we probably have multiple motivations competing. And I'm going to give you the morale version of this in a moment, but I'll start with a seagull. I always like starting with animals because they're simpler. We, we can see through. They can't trick us with language, so we can see things more clearly. I was sitting outside once. Actually, in, in around Edinburgh, and there was a seagull, and I had some food, and the seagull was obviously interested in the food. And from what I've seen of recent YouTube videos or whatever on seagull, I'm surprised he didn't just grab it out of my hand. But anyway, he was trying to figure it out, uh, and I could see him sort of dancing back and forth physically. You know, he, he would come closer, he wanted the food, but then he'd get nervous because, you know, I'm, maybe I'm a predator, he'd back up. So I threw a little food out, and sure enough, he came a little closer. But he kept sort of hovering. He'd find a balance point. And I started thinking about that. You know, why are there the balance point? And I realized it was probably because he had two motivations going on him that were competing. And it was expressing itself in space, right? So his hunger was driving him towards me. But his physical fear of me was pushing him back. And you could see that in space by the distance away from me. So why am I bringing up seagulls in the discussion of combat morale? Well... I, I think combat morale is somewhat similar. I don't mean it in any insulting way. Uh, I'll make it a very human story now. So you're ordered to do something dangerous, like an assault, right? This might involve somebody putting a bayonet in your stomach. Nobody likes that. So, or you're putting somebody else's, almost as unpalatable. So you're certain, unless you're a sociopath, to feel, uh, you know, physical fear. On the other hand, soldiers do it. Why? Right. Other motivations intervene. So, for instance, one of them is a social motivation, in my opinion, which is honestly shame or I put it differently, the f embarrassment, the fear of being socially humiliated, right, of losing prestige or standing in the group, which is very strong primate motivation across many primates. Right. They care about it, too. But humans, we all know we care about that. Uh, you know, it's called, uh, Joseph Campbell called it the, the social dragon, right? The fear of uh, the crowd not liking you. So bizarrely enough, I think there's a pretty good case. And part of morale is people not wanting to be embarrassed, right? In, and risking your physical life. Other things I've seen in your po other podcasts, and I agree with, obviously training, getting you so you reflexively overcome your emotional response um, leadership, which, of course, I'm particularly interested in and I'm going to talk about. So to sum up there, I view morale as cohesion. I view it as that that thing that makes a unit or individual overcome their physical fear or not, you know, anti-morale, right? They do very poorly in their morale and they run away or they go to ground or they do what's called taking cover. And now, there's a different way to define the term, which I call functionally which is forget my blather of words in mechanical and game turns in reality, or at least in my virtual game reality, what does it mean to have high or low morale? Okay. So concretely, if you're high morale, 
you're more effective as a unit. You move more because you're willing to take more risk moving cover to cover, and you're probably better at it. Uh, you fire better because you know what you're doing, right? That's sort of back to the cohesion. You're willing to stick your head up and at least spray bullets. So your fire effectiveness increases with morale. If you have a strong leader, they increase your morale further because of trust, which I can come back to. Um, other aspects. Most games look at the battlefield at, in firefights as bang, bang, you're dead. Meaning, oh, I'm going to take my unit. I'm going to shoot the other unit. And if I shoot enough bullets, that is dead. That's not the way World War II worked. Uh, it was arguably something in the range of 25,000 to 40,000 bullets to get a casualty. Okay, that's a casualty. That's not even a KIA. So most of the combat, and I draw very heavily on Dermot uh, Rooney and his colleagues, Brains and Bullets, now called War Games book on this. Uh, most battles in a small arms, leaving aside artillery, but small firefights in World War II really are morale struggles, which is you're firing a lot of bullets the other guy to basically suppress him. If you sufficiently suppress him, You'll flank and maneuver around him and try and finish him, you know, what's called the four Fs. And so, according to Dermot, and I believe it too, it wasn't mostly shoot them dead. It was mostly suppress them, and if things went well, you they would either surrender or run. So, burden of command, the battlefield is all about suppress, ideally if you're smart, flank, finish them, they'll surrender or run, and things went well. But they might not, and we get to one more mechanic, morale checks. Now, this is pretty common in a lot of uh, tactical war games like Squad Leader and so forth, less in digital games. The idea that you have to test your resolve. And again, Dermot, Dermot, I want credit after this for all these uh, nice compliments to you. Um, Dermot points, he thinks throughout history, but he, use, he uses Napoleonic and World War II examples. The assault's a really interesting one. I'm going to go through the assault, explain that one. I'll talk about one or two things and I'll stop I, I'm knowing going on here, but this is the heart. Um, so in an assault, which is one, obviously one of the most dangerous things you can ask people to do, get into hand-to-hand -hand combat, people hesitate. And he says, you know, it's hard to pick out statistics, but hand-wavy statistics are, you know, if they don't have particularly strong leadership or organization, maybe there's a 25% chance they'll do it if they're organized. I mean, if they're ordered. If they have okay internal leadership, maybe 40%. If they have strong internal leadership, an NCO they really trust or a superior officer they believe in, uh, then maybe it goes up to 75%. So in burden command, you order units to assault, run across that open field, possibly be shot down. You hope you suppress the enemy, but maybe they're playing with you. Um, you do a morale check, and that will depend heavily on the leader involved and the quality of the morale of the unit involved and how suppressed it is or not. Okay, so you make your morale check. You start, and I'm describing game mechanics rather than abstractions now. You start running across the field. Now the defender is faced with the same problem, whether this is Napoleonic period or World War II. Oh my God, here come these bastards to put a bayonet in my stomach. Am I really sure I want to die for the fatherland or motherland or even my fellows here, right? And so they make a morale check. And mostly there wasn't the exciting melee we imagine. Mostly they did. Uh, either they made the morale check, probably shot the other guys down before they got there, or they surrendered, or they ran off. And so the same thing happens to Burden Command. The attackers make their morale check, they make it, They now they're committed. They start moving across the field, they're probably going to go unless they're shot down. The defender makes a morale check, and then they either do one of the three things I said. Okay, so you can see so far, morale is core to the mechanics of the fighting on the battlefield. I'll close with two little details here, which are very interesting, I think. I read a book later, uh, had a lot of influence on me, called All the Way to Berlin uh, by a highly decorated 82nd James Magalas officer. And he described a crazy situation where, you know, they're taking heavy fire. They were being shot at from every direction by Germans. This is the Wall River crossing during Bridge Too Far. And they're out in little boats and they kept going and they got across and the Germans are still shooting at them. It's impossible. And they should have been slaughtered and they still kept going. Why? Now, in my game at the time, they would have all been suppressed and gone to ground and sort of made a failed morale check and went down. But these guys didn't. So I thought hard about it and I read it and reread it. What came up was a lot of mentions of rage. We were so angry. I'm sort of paraphrasing him here. We were so angry at the Germans for the friends of ours they'd killed 
And just for shooting us and trying to kill us, we wanted to kill the bastards, right? So basically it's rage, plus probably a lot of discipline, but not a pleasant, nice, heroic. I mean, they wanted to kill the bastards. So after that, I realized there was one more mechanic, which I call Undaunted, and, uh, and riffing off a nice board game by David Thompson. And that mechanic is, hey, you take a lot of fire, but with a lot of morale and good leadership, maybe you just shrug it off for reasons you could argue of rage. So that's one last mechanic. And then my final remark is, if you want, I'll talk about it, but I know I've talked for a bit there. We actually cover uh, combat fatigue, combat stress, and PTSD, which I would describe as long-term morale mechanics. And I think I could say a few interesting things there and also about trust, but I don't want to overstay my welcome. No, I'd love you to talk about those because I think they're absolutely fascinating, you know, especially some of the work done in Normandy, which suggests that, you know, peoples uh, who are put in the line in, and go through combat, you know, and they, they begin to get worn down. How does that function in the game? I mean, is it again, we can argue whether those figures are true. Um, I think about the, the swank and. Um, oh, very good. Very good. You know more than me, but that's my Bible for that. Excellent. So there's an article. He's referencing very good um, called I'm impressed. OK, because I thought I was so cool to know that article. OK, let's see. Hold on. Let me get my uh, I want to get the author right. So this is an article called Combat Neuroses. Now, you can see my research background, right? I love this stuff. So I didn't want to just do a game. I really wanted to try to model that some of these realities. And it was by Swank and let's see Martian in about 1946, I think, something like that. And I've read the original article. It's quite fascinating. They did a lot of interviews, as you said, of soldiers. And the pattern they came out, okay, terms. Let me back up, terms. So uh, I didn't know these terms so recently well. So PTSD, combat fatigue, and combat stress are all different. And there are also different terms during which World War One, World War II, modern. Um, combat, PTSD is really reactions to having been in battle off the battlefield like decades later maybe you freak out when a car tail gun you know tail backfires and you think it's fire and you hit the ground that's ptsd there's more to it but it's not immediate battlefield response then there is uh combat stress um which is really the long-term wear and tear accumulation of you'd argue degradation of morale from just too much exposure to combat there may be some evidence that's more from actually the damage to your brain from artillery but in any case it's long-term wear and tear and then there is combat stress which is or to be more formal combat stress reaction which is the actual reaction of the soldier to stress on the battlefield meaning something like you know gunfire goes off near them and maybe they break into shakes or they start crying uncontrollably or they go blind like that guy in band of brothers uh, you know psychologically blind not physically blind or you know they panic or they hit the ground or maybe they go the opposite and they go berserk those are combat stress reactions now the swank article says very interestingly that there's a great curve in there and the essence of uh, you know graph the essence of the graph is when you're green and you've had no exposure to combat then you see a lot of this pop right away. In other words, they freak out the first time they're in battle, some decent percentage of soldiers. Uh, they show what I defined as combat stress reactions. You know, it might be their first battle, and that might be when they go blind, quote unquote, or shake or rant or go berserk, right? Um, and you get this strong reaction to their first exposure, like any of us, right? The first time, you know, you have to be on a roller coaster, to use a weak analogy. You know, it's sort of a shock to the system. So people react to shock differently. Then you enter a phase to get more exposed to combat. They kind of calm down, to put it crudely. And you see much less of this. And it apparently goes away, the combat stress responses. So in Burden of Command, first time the soldiers go into battle, they get extra, essentially, morale checks to freak out, right? And I mean the squads, typically, sometimes the leaders. And they may suffer morale hits unusually compared to the rest of the war in their first battle. Now, in later battles, they're coming down as a leader. You're helping them deal with it psychologically, which is a whole other interesting issue. Um, and they manifest it very little. And they look like really effective soldiers who know what they're doing. But 
it's problem it's pretty clear that in the background they're still gradually degrading right they are slowly accumulating wear and tear right if i asked you to run a marathon you look fine in the middle but over time you start to show pant you start to look a little weaker it's accumulating even doesn't show so late as the war goes on er, you know the argument is basically everybody breaks eventually uh with enough combat exposure you start to show a lot of the patterns you showed at the very beginning again, right? So in Burden of Command, late war, the soldiers and the units and the leaders may start to break down. They start to act like they were back in their first battle, right? You'll see them more and more out of the blue, freaking out in the battlefield, showing a combat hit. I'm over-dramatizing this a little bit. Mechanically, their morale degrades. They don't literally freak out in the cinematic ways I'm describing normally. But the writers do sometimes actually get that across. That your leaders may take so much stress that late war, this is a bit of a spoiler, but every one of our narrative leaders with sufficient stress will suffer a PTSD incident off the battlefield. And then you as their leader will have to try to deal with it with them. It is by no means guaranteed you will successfully deal with it. So we are not trying to make a nice game where if you do everything right, it all works out. People will still die even though you did everything right. People may still fail their PTSD situation, even though you did everything right. Uh, you know, I'll give you one flavor of that quickly and I'll stop. Again, on battlefield decisions, nasty one one of the writers put on me. I'm shifting a little bit, but I want to get across that things don't go necessarily go well. So they said, oh, you know, they're Germans up there. They're in a farmhouse, uh, but there's a problem. And we have artillery, but there's a problem, sir. Uh, there's clearly civilians in there. They're using the civilians, we think, you know to discourage you. So what are you gonna do, Captain? Are you gonna uh, use artillery? Obviously if you use artillery, not much risk for your men, civilians will die. Or are you gonna be a nice guy, run across the open, get your soldiers killed to take care of these civilians? That is not an easy decision. So, and whatever you decide, you'll probably feel guilty, right? If you decide artillery, you'll feel guilty about the civilians you got killed. If you sent your men across, and you maybe you got Thompson, who's been with you for two years, killed because you couldn't, you know, risk civilians for his life. Um, you're going to feel guilty, but you may have made the right decision. So back to the PTSD. You may do everything right in a conversation, but the outcome you may not be happy about, even though it was the right call. So that's uh, how I handle the long term stuff. And then trust is another fun one. That's my little dangling. If you want one more. <laughs> OK, uh, I can see I've got an attic here. Okay, this is a really interesting one. So this is really core in terms of how do leaders work, you know, according to literature. So there's a really, I read a really interesting article called Unit Cohesion and by James McBreen, the and it was called The First Step in Improving Marine Corps Infantry Battalion Capabilities. And he sort of surveyed the literature, what makes for good unit cohesion. And there's a lot to unpack there, but I'll just focus on the leadership quality. And he said one of the reasons that units gain good cohesion, or in our terms, morale, is you have a good leader. Duh. Well, how do you get a good leader, a trusted leader? He believes, and I had, other, for other reasons, believe somewhat similarly, that trust is really based on two things. First, you seem to care. How do you manifest as leader you care? One, you may, you may verbalize it and you do nice things and you get them meals and so forth. But there's another core way, which is on the battlefield, do you risk your ass? Right. In other words, you order the men to go do something dangerous. Are you leading? We see Captain Winters lead in Band of Brothers, right? Like in Normandy uh, in the first D-Day, Day of Days. You know, he led from the front. Now, that's sort of ultimate trust. He's risking his ass with us for us. So I trust him. Right. So in Burden of Command, if you put your leader in the attack to help the morale or help the morale and trust in your leader, you or some of your subordinates will go up. We track the trust. But, of course, you may get yourself killed, which won't do much for your trust after that, right? So, you know, sometimes the effective leader might need to stay back and orchestrate the battle. You may remember that Band of Brothers scene towards uh, Battle of the Bulge period when, you know, Winters wants to run out there, as I think he's now a senior major, uh, and uh, lead the attack. But, you know, his colonel tells him, no, no, you need to stay back. You need to organize this. That's your responsibility. So leaders not always being the nice hero at the front. Maybe better leadership for your men is actually to stay back. So it's tricky. So burden command, we measure your, your caring, your trust by 
do you risk your ass? But also when you're given decisions that may put your career or, uh, you know, other things at issue for you, do you do the right thing by the men? Uh, and that boils down to the central tension of the game, which is men versus mission. Hey, you order the men to take the hill, but it may be impossible odds. Well, you're basically throwing their lives away, maybe, for the mission. But maybe you should. Maybe you're not throwing their lives away. So in the game, you are scored on men and mission. Every battle. How did you take care of the men? You were in trust for doing that. How did you take care of the mission? You were in prestige. Well, if you're a nice guy and you don't risk the guys all the, every battle and you just keep them back, everybody's nice and safe, well, you know, the colonel's not going to be too happy with you and would capture that narrative. You may get relieved eventually. And, you know, didn't you have a responsibility to win the war morally? So uh, trust is based on, first, do you care? And secondly, according to McBean, are you effective? You know, oh, good. Luke's a nice guy. He really cares about us. Boy, he's even out here risking his ass with us. But the moron had us run across the open field in front of the MG42. You know, nice guy. I wish you were dead, right? Because he's getting us killed. So you've got to be effective, too. So in Burden of Command, we, I score trust on two things, the risk-taking and caring, I describe. But then are you effective? Do you tend to win firefights? You tend to lose firefights measured in the men's eyes as they're taking unnecessary casualties. Your trust goes down. So trust. So it seems that everybody is motivated by example. And, you know, you see, you're generally, I suppose you could say pull factors. What about push factors? What's the role of coercion in motivating and persuading soldiers under a player's command to follow their orders? Are you able to, for instance, court martial them, shoot them, um, promote problem people to different units or, you know, potentially, um, I suppose, use the stick rather than the carrot on your men? Tom, I was telling Tom before we started formally, that was a great question. And, you know, I've talked about burden before and I've never had that question before. So that was a particularly interesting one, obviously, because he's an expert. Um, comes up a little bit less than, say, if we were doing a Soviet campaign with not one step back, you know, where they would shoot soldiers that uh, retreated. Uh, and I think uh, when I hear that's happening again in Ukraine um, and it's a little different probably than how it ran in Germany, especially late war when they didn't hesitate to shoot or hang people uh, who, you know, very, very brutal forms of coercion. But obviously there was coercion in the American army, too. Um, we do do some of that. It is not OK. There are two ways we do things in the game, like I alluded to, the tactical mechanics on the battlefield, and then all the things the writers get to do on and off the battlefield. The writers are my great cheat system. In other words, we can do almost anything with the writers we wanted to. We could have Martians land in the middle of Sicily, right, for what, whatever the hell reason, because right words can do anything. And then we translate them in, into mechanics. Oh, you know, the aliens land in the middle of battlefield. Everybody takes a morale hit. I mean, we could do that. But to be more sober about it, we can model a lot of soft things like you alluded to without having to write code, a formal mechanism for everyone. So to get concrete on that, uh, I asked one of the, the lead writer about this. I'll give you some examples. It is possible through the narrative to do a relieve. So an example of that is this. Ha all those ones I'm going to give you here are in the game. An officer might prove insubordinate. I'm reading here, about risking their men to dig in a pair of tanks at the front lines of Anzio. So now you got to decide what to do, right? He's this lieutenant saying, I just don't, you know, this is a, sir, you know, you probably say it better, but sir, you're going to get men killed here for no purpose. I, you know, we cannot do this, sir. He's being insubordinate. I refuse to do this. This is throwing away the men's lives. I mean, it doesn't have to be a bad person to be insubordinate. So what are you going to do? Now, we don't go as far as court-martial, but you are given the option to temporarily relieve them of duty. Um, downside for you is you won't have them as an officer there. Upside, you know, is maybe you've got the message across and you'll affect their, uh, their morale in future, also the morale of the Marin. Uh, another example, there's a scenario where um, soldiers fall behind and, and stay behind. In other words, they might be shirking here. Now, you can have Sergeant Grant your first sergeant uh, cajole or frankly just old school beat them which certainly happened with some regularity in world war ii you know sergeant has a personal conversation so to speak with the soldiers um you can make those decisions and of course that will affect the morale of the men involved uh, what i think he did here was 
their morale was negative for the rest of that scenario, but better for the rest of the game, right? They didn't like being beaten up, but they got the message for the rest of the game. And you don't have to decide I'm right or wrong there. The point is we can model it, you know. The game engine doesn't care. We translate these narrative moments where you choose your own adventure choices into morale or stress or combat fatigue or other kinds of effects. Last one, there's an incident um, late in a war where an American sergeant shoots a wounded German soldier from a distance. Now, instead of take, going out and taking the prisoner, right? So what are you gonna do? You know, you could, uh, you could upgrade them or you could send them to a rear unit for eventual transfer, which of course, all these could have effects on the morale of the unit. Maybe they like this sergeant overall, right? But it's still the right thing to do, arguably. So you could do a transfer. To sum up, we do allow relieves, we do allow cajoles or even beatings. You could, uh, we could do transfers. Uh, the fiction is our primary mechanism for doing many of these soft things. Uh, so, and, and, and we err on the side of trying to take our choose your own adventure situations from history because, you know, history is stranger than fiction so often. So we do a, we do a fair number of things. One of the fun things we do in the game, fun in the academic sense, I guess, is we'll put a weird incident in front of you. You have to make a decision like I put Tom through at the beginning with the, the apparently drunken soldier or sergeant. Um, and, you know, the, the reader will think, oh, my God, please, I was believing in Burden Command. Now they're showing some stupid Hollywood incident at me. But then we have a little book icon in the bottom right corner. And if you mouse over it, we give you the historical reference for the unbelievable incident. Like if you go to the, our YouTube channel and you watch one of our first teasers, there's an incident where you're asked, hey, uh, you know, there's a sniper in the town here. He's killing men. Do you, what do you want to do? And you get reasonable things like, well, let's, you know, search carefully and put down fire. But one of the choices you get is, do you want to step out and be a target for the sniper so you can, the men can spot him better? Now, that's a crazy idea. You'll guess by now that that's, in fact, was historical choice taken. There was a really gutsy, high quality, was he Colonel by then uh, in the video? See, he did that unbelievably. He stepped out and, and made himself a target for the sniper so the men could find him. I mean, oh, my God. Right. So <laughs> go ahead. That's the answer on the coercion stuff. I think if we do a German or a Soviet campaign, you know, those will be very different things or Japanese to model. You've alluded to it already, but what? What sort of historical sources and academic work have you used to model the game um, on? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the core Bible was American courage, American carnage in terms of the history and the battles. And we follow pretty closely while allowing you to make some different decisions. Uh, and we're much more interested in your being a company commander. You're not going to change World War II for the most part. I mean, you certainly change some local moments and can say you contributed. But it's about the real experience rather than a power fantasy. Uh, in larger books... Um, I, again, I'll allude to uh, brain, brain and Bullets, or it's now called War Space Games. Um, uh, that's really a battlefield tactical psychology book, and I took a lot from it. Uh, then another one I thought was very effective is called The World Within War, and the author surveys British, American, a little bit German, uh, is there one more? Those are the primary ones. He looks at how did soldiers react to the war? And this was very strongly World War II, strongly influential on the writers. I'll give you short from that. He says, you know, the typical syndrome you see with the, with the soldier, American soldiers was uh, at the beginning, they're incredibly gung-ho. And they're all sitting there with some seriousness saying, you know, we'll be in Berlin next week, even if they're landing in Morocco somewhat irrationally, you know. And, uh, you know. I'm, I may not quite capture Hitler myself, but I'll come close, right? That's how they're starting. And then they get on the battlefield, and they, they're shocked to find the battlefield does not look like the movies with John Wayne, etc. For instance, Germans are not standing here saying, hey, please shoot me, I'm the enemy. You know, you have a lot of people where the enemy's hidden to the best of their capacity, and so you may have your buddies shot down dead near you uh, out of the blue, right? Not fair. And artillery isn't fair. So... Now they start to have some psychological shock, maybe combat stress, uh, com I mean combat fatigue, and their, their, their words start to change. So they start to say things like, oh, you know, this war is more dangerous than I thought. We're probably not getting there as quick as we thought. And, you know, people may get 
killed. And then they try move towards, oh, you know, my buddies may get killed, but, you know, they're not saying themselves. And then maybe, you know, buddies killed, maybe get wounded. And then there's a phase they realize, you know, and this is classic. You'll hear things like there's a bullet out there with my name on it in their language, right? They come to the conclusion, probably pretty rationally, unfortunately, that it's only a matter of time that I am doomed. And it's just I need that million dollar wound, arguably, because otherwise I won't make it right. And that's that kind of language may often be correlated with the late sort of reemergence of combat stress and PTSD and so forth. Right. Because that's a pretty brutal recognition for any human. And, and there's a lot more in there about how soldiers view, deal with why did the Americans fight versus British officer versus uh, men. Another interesting book that was influential very early on is What It Is Like to Go to War, which is by Carl Malentes. It's Vietnam War, actually. He was a fascinating guy. He's still alive. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He gave up his Rhodes Scholarship to volunteer to go be a lieutenant in Vietnam. Not many people did that kind of thing, volunteer, et cetera, but especially in a cushy ride-out-the-war situation like that. And he writes very articulately. He's also a novelist about it. And he says... I'll give one th short thing from him that influenced us. Says that combat, how does he say it? He says, when you go to war, you enter the temple of Mars. What does he mean by that? He says, you are entering a spiritual plane. That does not mean it is a nice spiritual plane. It might be hell, but it is spiritual. Why is it spiritual? Because death is involved. What else could be more fundamentally spiritual for people than life and death, right? So he says, you will be confronted with fundamental choices and so forth. So in fact, our first Morocco campaign, the writer's term based on a book, internally, we call it uh, entering the temple because really it's getting exposure to combat and death and uh, often random death and brutal death. And we try to cover that visually. This game is mature rated. We do not pull punches where needed, though not gratuitously on brutal imagery and so forth, because we don't want to convey this is a nice heroic journey. It's a very complicated journey that has heroic qualities and non-heroic qualities. Um, okay, finishing up in the books, I think I mentioned all the rest. There are quite a, a lot more, and there are many individual unit, um, you know, individual commander ones, like company commander and so forth, that I read as sort of primary material. But these are the most, inter some of the most key theoretical ones for me. And, just coming to the end, what about the role of environment, weather and topography on um, morale? Because obviously we get lots of, you know, stories on the trenches about essentially weather conditions being very, yeah. very determining, determining of how people feel and how they, they go forward in battle. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, when I, I asked, you know, I've been reading on the combat stress, et cetera, and I asked John McManus about that, again, our advising historian. Now, he wrote a book, Grunts, by the way, on generally U.S. soldiers in various combat situations, which also another big influence besides uh, American courage, American carnage. And he brought that up immediately. He said, you know, combat, you know, stress, com stress, does, combat stress does not just come from the battlefield. Uh, well, he made a couple of points, actually. One was stress comes not just from your own, your own uh, fellows dying around you, but also from up close personal death. Of the enemy i'm going to come back to weather in a moment you see that band of brothers there's that moment where winners sees a young german soldier pop up near him thinking of fights on in netherlands and he has a moment of hesitation he shoots him dead but he can't forget him right because it's obviously a young man you know probably doesn't even necessarily want to be there but just somebody you could have been friends with and he's haunted by it in paris so um I'm getting off a little bit there. The point was John McManus is saying there are many factors beyond friendly casualties that cause combat stress. One of them is enemy casualties if you're a moral person, right? It's not pleasant to know you're killing other people. But he brings up, he brought up just like you, weather, fatigue, you know, environmental conditions. Are you cold all the time? Or do you have good sleeping conditions? Do you have good food? And again, this is where the writers come to the rescue. So we have things where you make decisions about kitchen you know, uh, will they get hot food? Do you want to stop for a moment? Maybe that's going to cost you a little bit in getting to battle, but maybe you should grab the food. I can't remember the exact essence of the decision, but it's something, you know, we always try to make decisions not straightforward, right? Do you take the time out to try to manage hot meals for them? But there are things you should be doing. Um, we, we, I asked the writers about this. So one of the scenarios, for instance, they, they give all the units initial suppression 
because of the cold, which is sort of short-term morale effect. You can sort of rally them, get them together, but the colds make them less effective. Uh, another one is actually early on, they, come, they are on the landing craft at Morocco, and they're all getting seasick, as they did, right? And so they, they hit the beaches, and their morale's already down, and we model that as short-term suppression because they're all nauseous. How effective can you be when you want to be sick? So you have to overcome that. So the short answer is yes. Now, I don't, we don't handle it in grand theoret theoretical ways. I'm not tracking a you know, really clever fatigue and how many meals have you had variable, but we convey it. That's the power of the narrative aspect, right? That we can convey as needed these kind of dimensions and one-off things like maybe in this battle, like in Morocco early on, the Americans didn't know what they're doing in logistics. So they start marching towards Casablanca and you don't have all the supplies you should have. Well, we can model that as morale effect, right? Soldiers don't feel very good about their situation because they don't feel they have enough supplies to fight effectively, which does affect morale. And my penultimate question is, what about behavior off the battlefield, such as being on leave or out of the line? How does that shape um, the sort of the leader's challenge? Well, this is another, uh, you know, area we get to do things pretty unusually. Um, I, I didn't ask about the morale effects, but just to give you a sense of the kind of off battlefield, I'll give you one direct morale on battlefield. But I just want to mention again the kind of variety of off battlefield things we can do. I was talking with the playtesters just two days ago, and they brought up, you know, how compelling and interesting it was to them to to be in a funky situation for a a you know a, a leadership RPG, but actually not so strange. Which is, I think they were in uh, Naples, maybe, and they were they were they had to go to a VD uh, class because that's what they did, right? They bring in the soldiers. And they bring pretty gruesome pictures up to try to scare them about behavior with prostitutes and so forth to lessen VD. Uh, and in fact, it's a female poor, poor 1944 woman or 43 woman who has to give this lecture. She's a new nurse and so forth. So, you know, there's some slightly comical aspects, but serious, too. So that's an example that is very off the battlefield. And, and but may matter, you know, in various ways. And sometimes it's just to give experience to the laws. Now, directly to your point. So I asked um, Alan uh, Geese, the uh, lead writer, about uh, an example of uh, morale affecting off the battlefield. So this is an interesting one. It's called the event, the story is called Family Dinner. So when you're in Sicily, uh, around Palermo, and again, everything I'm going to tell you here, this is loosely based on some of the real history i can give you a little more of the real history if you want but the gist of it is you're having you've been invited by a civilian family to a nice dinner and they're being really nice to you and the men are really appreciating it's very good for morale right to have a hot meal and have some normalcy and be with a family i don't know if there's a pretty uh you know woman at the girl at the table but you know it's good for morale but unexpectedly uh u.s military police show up why turns out that the son of the families at the dinner table is a Italian deserter, uh, not a U.S. deserter, Italian army deserter. Um, and the MPs, you know, are, are coming to get him to put him in because he should be in a prisoner war camp. Right? This is the son of the family. He's just treated you very nicely. Right. Further, they're here because they've heard reports that there are supplies, U.S. Army supplies of this family. And in fact, that turns out to be true. But the family says hey, you know, we traded for these goods, you know, uh, we did, we didn't do any, you know, we just were operating the black market. We weren't out to do bad things. We needed food for the family and they plead for their son. And now you have a tricky decision to make as a leader. Uh, and the choices that, that you're given were, um, let me see, you could do the right thing, quote unquote, right? You could, or actually the way the writer puts it, you can do it the army way, which is you can say, okay, you know, rest them, right? Uh, and that will increase the combat fatigue of the men, but you'll gain some prestige, which is kind of the money with your superiors. They'll be happy you did it, but your men won't be very happy. They'll feel guilty about it and also bad for the family. Also, they wanted the meal. Uh, or you can make an argument and defend the family. and Or you can order the military police to not do this. And that last one's a little bit of a trap, right? Because in fact, uh, I, an army... Lieutenant, even captain, has no authority to order, a, as I understand it, a military police uh, officer or NCO to do anything. So 
That one you get schooled on how the army works if you try that one. <laughs> but if you try the persuasion one, and you can make a decent argument, which is, hey, you know, sergeant, uh, this is to the MP sergeant. Hey, look, sergeant, you know, we can do this. We can arrest these people or take their supplies. But first, do we really want to alienate all the civilians around here? You know, maybe there's a better picture for us here and keep them on our side at the cost of a few supplies, right? Or maybe, you know, the family here would agree to be friendly informers for us. In other words, they will tell us about the larger network. So you can trap a larger, you know, uh, network than just this one family. Uh, and by the way, you may fail in the argument. If you fail in arguments, actually, so have a worse outcome, right? You did, you tried to do the right thing, and you failed. So now you look, remember trust, you look ineffective to the men. You tried to stand up, make the right thing happen, and you failed. So now it backfires on you, and you lose. <laughs> they're depressed because a family got arrested, and you lost face trust with them. So writers are nasty, by the way. <laughs> so. Uh, those are that's a nice example. And, and by the way, it's a little interesting aspect of that. Uh, the U.S. Army did cooperate to a good degree with the mafia in Italy, Naples and Sicily. One of the, And that sounds sort of on the surface bad. One of the reasons was they sometimes had no choice, really. They wanted to be effective in the shipyards at Naples and so forth. But the other reason was, interestingly, because history is complicated, the mafia was one of the few organizations to resist Mussolini and the fascists. I mean, not because they're wonderful moral people, I suspect. But they were resisting them. So, you know, it's kind of an anti-fascist group that maybe even though you don't like them, you should cooperate with some. So we try to paint these kind of complicated situations. And yes, morale and combat stress and combat fatigue and trust um, and so forth can can all be influenced off the battlefield. And I've focused on some of the men issues here because we're thinking about men morale. But trust me, there are many conversations where you have... You will have conversation with your superiors. You're a wonderful guy. You do all the right trust things. You call off the fight uh, because you think the men will be unnecessarily slaughtered, kind of like Winters did with the second prisoner capture late in the war at the canal where he lied. Even though Winters was incredibly upstanding, Vander Brothers, he lied to the superior because he thought it was pointless to get his men killed again or risk getting killed for a second prisoner capture. But, you know, you can do that kind of stuff, all the good things for the guys. But then the colonel may pull you in and chew you out, right? And you may lose prestige and you may not get the artillery at. He may be prejudiced not to give you things you need for the next battle, even if that's irrational. You know, it's it, there's no easy answer to the tension between men versus mission, which is, in the end, the burden of command. And that leads me to my last question is, when can I play it and lead my men to victory? Oh, such, such, such. Detailed questions. Why do we have to get into little meaningless questions like that? <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, uh, we're getting close. Um, I made a mistake uh, just to show my leadership qualities. I'll tell you an embarrassing story. It's about 2017. I was new to doing game, you know, design game project, though I have project management experience from Accenture, et cetera. So we did our first teaser. And if you go watch the original one, which I'm happy to say got about 25,000 views, pretty gratifying. Um, I say releasing in 2018. Now, at the time, uh, you may notice it's not 2018 now. Uh, I uh, I remember other members of the team, some of them with a little more experience than me, said, do not, do not give a release date. Do not give a release date. And I said, no, 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 no. I know what I'm doing. Like a classic young lieutenant. <laughs> Absolutely attack the, the MG42 head on. So, you know, I had to eat crow and I did a later video. Uh, where I basically said, you know, made fun, you know, every, every war, everybody thinks they're going to get to Berlin by Christmas or Richmond. And so that was on my equivalent. Oh, yeah, we'll release in 2018. So since then, I have a rather rigid rule, which I will not give you a date because I've, I've eaten micro enough once. But I will tell you, first, as a principle, it'll be done when it's done right. That's the way we're thinking about it. Rather than a rigid date, I can give you a concrete answer which is, there's a video on it on our YouTube channel, which is fun to watch, about two minutes long, give you a flavor of a campaign with pictures, narrative, and tactical, and it shows where we are in the playtesting. And the short version is, uh, the playtesters have tested the Morocco chunk, about five or six scenarios. They've tested the uh, Sicily chunk about a week ago. They finished the Italy chunk. Now we're doing Southern France. Each of these is about three or four weeks. And then after that, they'll do Germany. 
and then they'll test the tutorials we have for players. And then we'll try stitching together. There'll be a phase two where we'll bring in a new wave of green play testers so we can get people who have had no exposure to it, unlike our set of hardened vets, get their feedback. And then we'll be doing a lot of balancing and testing, and that will take longer than we expect because it's hard to balance across 23 scenarios, meaning we don't want everybody dead after the second scenario, nor do we want nobody dead, if I can be so ruthless, by the 23rd scenario, right? And we need units to gain experience and leaders to gain trust, but we don't want everybody a five-star highest rated trust officer by scenario three, right? That would be wrong. And these things are hard to balance and players are different. So how do we balance against all the variety of players? But all that being said, you know, I think we're, we're closing in on having what's called a full alpha in the industry, meaning feature complete thing, which we are now trying to polish and balance. And that's obviously a rather late stage to be at. So we're optimistic. And I hope I didn't get very concrete on dates on that. <laughs> no, that's, that sounds fantastic. Luke, thank you very much for your time. Oh, thank you for letting me prattle on about these fun things.